Hey again, everybody, and welcome back into Locked On Bama. Luke Robinson, that's me. Jimmy Stein, that's him. Jimmy, how are you today? Good, good. You doing good? I'm really not, man. I got a I got a sinus infection or something, and I, you know, I've learned been fighting that for a while. Well, I, I had a, like a 24 hour bug last Friday, or yeah, I guess no, two Fridays ago, and that sucked, and or maybe two, yep. maybe a Thursday ago or whatever. But, um, and I was sick as hell over Thanksgiving and I, I don't, I don't think I'm ever really sick and I've been sick a shitload and the sinus infection, there's not much you can do about it. I get, I mean, I can take some antibiotics, but you got to go to a doctor. And the problem with going to a doctor these days I've learned is people either go to the doctor when they're, they're paranoid and they're like, I, you know, oh, I'm worried about this little scratch. I got to go get it checked out. I got to, and they log jam and bottleneck the waiting room or they're hurt as shit and i'm not either one of those and so i gotta uh you know i gotta just sort of tough this thing out i think i mean i might go to a dock well, in the box later but don't be that guy that's laying in the graveyard with a tombstone that read i really didn't think this was serious or this was preventable <laughs> this was easily preventable yeah I immediately regretted this decision. Um, yeah, I'm the I'm the same way as dumb as this. I'm more like a hypochondriac. I mean, I'm I'm really am. I mean, like I can't have a headache that's not a brain tumor. I can't have a sinus infection that's not pneumonia. I can't, you know, I just, I, you know, if if whatever the symptoms of coronavirus are, if if I read it in a TV commercial, I go, holy crap, I've got that. So oh, yeah. I'm the hypochondriac. But but at the same time, I don't like going to the doctor. So. It's 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 a hellish thing to be a hypochondriac. Oh, by the way, like my best friend is my doctor. I mean, he happens to be a doctor, but like I, I talk to him once or twice a week, you know, about basically anything. And uh, and we're pals. Uh, and saw him the other day out for a couple beers. And uh, so it's not like it's not like I have to. I'm fortunate not to have to wait in line. I can always go in the back door at his place. He, he sometimes sees me outside of the office if it's something simple. Or calls in a prescription, you know. Uh, so, so in other words, it's easy for me to do this, but I don't like bothering him, though yeah. he knows I'm a hypochondriac and he makes fun of me over this. Yeah, it's got to be weird having a friend that's a doctor because anytime you ask him, tell some stories. I was at a, uh, I was at a. God, we are doing nothing in Alabama right now, but this is kind of what we do, folks. So hang with us. But um, <laughs> the other night, I went to. I guess it was. Shit, was it last night? Yeah, I guess it was last night. Um, we went over to the friends, a neighbor's house. Like they had a little cookout, and they said, "Yeah, come over and meet this new couple, the doctor friends of ours." And so he shows up, and he turns out he's an orthopedic doctor, and it's great. And I don't know if I said before, but another thing that happened: I got, I really hurt my finger, and it's a condition called yeah. mallet finger, and it you sucked. Tell me this. And I and I was like, look, man, I said, I got this thing all bandaged up. And I said, I don't want to go to a doctor because I don't want to get this big splint on my finger because it sucks to have that. I've tried that before. And that's why this other finger is jacked up. But, I, you know, I'm fine with it. If But I, I'm trying to fix it on my own. So I unraveled all these bandages I have on this thing. He's like, yeah, you, you got mallet finger. And then I was like, look, man, I, I hate to be the guy at the dinner party like, hey, right. check out this mole on my ass. Is it is this looking malignant <laughs> to you? Um, but uh, I said, I, you're here. I've got mallet finger. You know, we should talk. And um, he said, yeah, there's not a shitload you can do about it. You just need to keep it as straight as you can. And that's it. So that's that's where we are with it. But anyway, that's where you are with your mallet finger. 
I've got, but you know, the first time you announced to the show that you had mallet finger, I I really thought it was a lead in to what was going to be a really good joke, but apparently that's a thing. It's a thing. It's a real thing. It's not a lead in to a joke about croquet. I thought it was going to be a joke about croquet. I prefer you call it baseball finger. That's another name for it. And um, it's much better. Mallet finger sounds like the hands equivalent to hammer toe, which I think is just awful. But um, anyway, so a Herb Jones love fest continues. It's almost like we're having a Herb Jones Mardi Gras. If you look on Twitter <laughs> and you follow um, Locked on Bama or you follow Jimmy or me or, uh, you know, any sorted number of Alabama folks, I guarantee you your timeline is jammed up with various video angles of Herb Jones shooting those free throws one-handed the other night to the point where one of my Auburn friends, and I told you this was coming, one of my Auburn friends texted me and said, hey, look, when can I start making fun of Herb Jones for being about 50% when he's shooting with his regular hand? I was like, you, know, you can do it now, but it doesn't make him any less of a hero. I mean, he's just a <laughs> hero. It is funny that it worked out that way. I mean, he's not a good free throw shooter. That's great. I mean, it makes the it almost makes the story better in some ways. Oh, there's no question. It's almost like the uh, what was it? Was it in um, Hoosiers when the kid who's like terrible at basketball he gets fouled with just a you know like a second left and he goes to the line to shoot and he shoots granny style. He and, shoots the granny style, yeah, and, and wins the game. You know, that's that was Hoosiers. Yeah, I remember that uh, uh, unathletic kid who is a poor comparison to Herb Jones, but I remember it very well. I remember exactly what you're talking about, no doubt. Um, was like there that, anything sort of? There, you know, when one thing you and I didn't mention that we should have, we owe uh, a great deal of gratitude and um, apologies because we didn't bring him up. Galen Smith played the game of his career to me Saturday, and he was—I don't know exactly what he was from the free throw line, but I think he only missed one. And frankly, every time he gets fouled, the only thing I think about is. I hope he misses it badly enough where you get one of those long rebounds and we can get it because he is, I I, I would have sworn he was shooting 0% from Did the he foul line. something like 10 points and six rebounds? I think he had like a 10-6 night. And and he, he had some crucial free throws too. It wasn't like he, he, he yep. had some key free throws down the stretch. Yep, yep, yep. Alex Reese hitting what amounted to the game-clinching three. It deserves a 50 50- shout out because dude nailed the three that that, that clinched the game to oh, beat yeah. LSU and quell their comeback. But I would also point out that we just shot, we inexplicably get the offensive rebound with the lead and a dwindling clock, and he jacked up a quick shot. Right when he let go of the ball, I'm like, no! I thought we needed to kill another 20 seconds at least, you know, from the clock, but... uh. But hey, you know, when you make it, when you make it, it's all good. When you make it, it's like, oh, what a great shot, you know. But sometimes not all great shots are wise shots. No, that that is very true. But here's the thing: um, when he took, when he put the shot up, I thought I had the same thought as you. But I believe that's what Oates wants us to be: is don't be scared right. to shoot it. Just shoot the damn yeah. thing. Well, I mean, he shoots. You know, we shoot a hundred of them a day, or or whatever it is. And that, I think the top of the key is his. One of our good. Let's mention, I, I don't know, uh, one of our good uh, Crimson Country Club uh, buddies, uh, Drake Miller, Coach Miller, uh, former college basketball coach and friend of the show and friend of Crimson Country Club. Uh, 
you told me, I mean, I learned a lot about basketball from my, my lunches with Drayton. And, and, and one thing you told me, it makes so much sense about, about coaching, especially at the college level, is, you know, what coaches want to know from every, every kid that's on the team. Every kid on the team needs a spot on the floor that's his. This is his spot. He makes his shots from here. And then the kid has to work his ass off to prove that, hey, this is his spot. This is where he shoots. This is where he's comfortable shooting. And then it's the coach's job to put him there open. You know, that, that, then it's, that's the coach's job. Okay, the kid's like, hey, I can make this shot. And then the coach devises a scheme to where the kid is there and he's open and he takes the shot. And based on that, and it makes so much sense. I never really thought about things in that term, in those terms before. That's so simple. I've never really thought about it like that before. And then Alex Reese, if he has a spot, it's the top of the key. He, yeah. he shoots from the top of the key all the time. And I'm guessing that's his spot. And if he's at the top of the key, uh, you know, green light, man, go. I mean, that's your spot. Do it. Are we right? the only? Are we the only team in the SEC? where it feels like officials call more fouls on us at home than they do on the road. <laughs> I know this. I feel like, I mean, I don't ever want to be compared to the Auburn people and the Auburn announcers who famously complain about officiating throughout an entire football and basketball game. I don't want to be that guy because I, I don't believe that I don't believe in a biased officiating crew, not in basketball or football. I don't believe anywhere biased. I think they just, make human error like all of us do in all of our jobs so that's what i want to believe but it just i guess because we just love it so much we 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 have selective perception but it sure seems like we go on the road and they call fouls on us instead of me going oh this is so efficient this is so biased i'm like well life on the road life on the road that's what happens when you're on the road in this league you're going to get calls against you and then when we're at home i'm always holding my hands up going why aren't we getting these these calls why aren't we getting these calls we we, we don't seem to have this home court advantage but frankly i'm sure what i'm doing is just selective perception selective bias and i just you know i guess it's just typical human nature to feel like the forces are aligned against you but the reason i bring it up is because the the foul situation got so one-sided and, you know, normally I'm kind of like – I don't – I'm not a guy that believes, you know, you call a foul for a foul. Like, it's got to be even. I mean, some teams foul yeah. more than others. But I also do believe that offici- officials got to catch up with styles, especially when they change. For instance, you know, Rick Pino basically famously said, we're going we're gonna to hand check and we're going we're gonna to body you up because they can't call it every time. They just won't do it. And the problem yep. with that with us right now is we uh, we haven't been playing as aggressively throughout the right. year. I mean, our defense has been good in the past, but we haven't been playing as aggressively defensively and offensively. And I think officials are trying to, you know, catch up to Alabama having this new style of defense. Because I, when I watch Auburn play, the whole time I'm thinking, boy, they're hand-checking the shit out of these guys. Why aren't they calling that? And um, – you know, Auburn just plays really aggressively. And I think they understand, okay, this is how Bruce T- Pearl's teams play. And unless it's pretty egregious, we're not going to call it. And I'm fine with that. Um, the problem is when we're sort of the – we're in the gray area of officials getting used to our new style is my theory. At least I hope that's what's right. 
I, I, th- I think that there's something to that. I, I think, and, and it, this is a related explanation. It's really totally related to style of play. It's just that, and, and I think Casa Grande or Zenith, or some, one, one of the beat writers may have made this point that I'm stealing, but maybe there's not as many fouls called, uh, you know, on on our opposition because we're, we, we shoot so many more threes than everybody else. And typically, typically when you put up a three, you don't get fouled. When you do put up a two in the paint, you're often fouled. And yeah. that's the way our opposition plays more often than we do. Therefore, that's the foul disparity. And I am sure, I will call that for sure a partial explanation of what's going on. For sure. Now, that said, I can't remember what a home game it was, but I think I was there. Tennessee. No, no. Who do we play first? Arkansas. Arkansas. It seemed to me, well, Arkansas or Tennessee, but it was probably both. It seemed to me that we attacked the rim a lot in those two games because I was kind of frustrated with it because I'm like, where are the threes? This isn't what we do. Yeah. And it seemed like we attacked the rim a lot. And our guys would attack the rim and come out with multiple broken bones, bleeding from more than one spot, no whistle. Then on the other side of the floor, it seemed like when they attacked the rim, if we had a big fart in their general direction and the stinky air brushed their shorts, it was a quick foul because hell, all of our bigs fouled out of one game, you know? So uh, it seems that way, but I mean, you know, when you're biased, I mean, like me, I mean, I watch the Braves and every ball that's low and outside when it's the other team, I think it's a, you know, I think it's a ball, and when it's the Braves pitching, I think it's a strike. So, like, I guess that's just—I guess that's just when you're a sports fan, that's how you see things. No, that is very much human nature. Um, but when you uh, when you crop dust, like you just mentioned, it can be a foul, especially at a party. Trust me. Um, foul is a great foul is a great word to describe that. It's foul. Um, the apparently according to TR brackets, whatever the hell that is, um, mm-hmm. that is a website that tracks uh, teams percentages to get into the NCAA tournament. They say Alabama right now is a 91.5% chance to make the tournament. I frankly think that's very, uh, I mean, inflated uh, to say the least. I would, I would give our chances to make the tournament 50, 50 at best. I mean, no offense to TR brackets. I'm sure you know more than I, but, um, well, they, it sounds to me like they're projecting uh, how we're going to win or lose out in these last six plus the SEC tournament. You'd have to be projecting that um, to come up with those percentages, I would think. I got sort of a definitive answer. I was probably had a conversation. Let's call it this. Thanks to Twitter, I'm going to say that I had a conversation with Jerry Palm, who I consider the best of the best. I mean, Lenardi does this stuff, and there's others that do it. And Jerry can be a little uh, – I don't know if confrontational is the right word. He can be a little, he's, he's adamant about his opinions, but this is the way I personally feel. I think Jerry Palm's the best. I mean, in terms of predicting the field, talking intelligently about it, knowing the sport, knowing all the teams and Hey, he don't butter up to your team and and he's not biased either. I know he's a Purdue guy, but heck he rips on Purdue more than he rips on anybody. But anyway, what I'm saying is I had a conversation with Jerry Palm and by conversation, I just meant he answered a question I asked him on Twitter. So I was curious to know, 
because I think it was so relevant to Alabama's situation. I asked Jerry Palm, I'm like, what's the lowest win total anyone has ever had and still made the NCAA tournament? Just lowest win total. And I guessed it would be 16. I knew it would be – we're talking about all time. So, so And you're not talking about automatic. You're not talking about an automatic no, tournament. No, no, I'm talking about an at-large bid. Yeah. Lowest win total for an at-large bid ever. And I think they went to 64 in 1985. Yeah. So you're talking about 36 years, 36 years now of, uh, of select 36 years of selecting 30, you know, 64 now 68 teams. That's a good, that's a good sample size of all those years. The lowest one is 16. I guess correctly that it was 16 as the lowest win total. It happened to be a year that Alabama was also a bubble team and we got squeezed out. A 16-win Georgia team got in over Alabama, despite the fact Alabama beat Georgia head-to-head that year, no less. Was that 01? Uh, 01? Yeah, the 01 Georgia team is the lowest win total of any team to ever get in the tournament. And they went out in the first round, by the way. They did against a team that, and I believe it was Missouri. I, I have a recollection that it was Missouri. And uh, I joked at the time with whoever I was talking to, it might have been Jerry Palm by email, uh, that Alabama, had they been in and Georgia's not Alabama, would have been favored to win the game or some such. (laughs) And I'll I'll further joke that should Georgia lose to Missouri, it would be one more quality loss and perhaps they would uh, move into the second round. They'd advance, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So that, that would have been a great tweet if Twitter were invented back then. I digress, but it, it wasn't an email because back then that's how you did it. It was way, way, it was way pre-Twitter. But anyway, I digress. My point is this. 16 wins is the lowest ever. But this is more relevant to us, even though I didn't ask as an Alabama fan. But he figured it out, I'm sure, if he looked at my Twitter profile. Um, <laughs> you have to be in – to make the NCAA tournament – only one team ever has made the NCAA tournament less than four games over 500 as your record. So your total overall record, only one team, and it was that 16-win Georgia team that made the NCAA tournament. So the point is, if we aren't four games over 500, we would be making history. Do not be the Alabama fan that just assumes because we're Alabama and our strength of schedule is pretty good and our net's high that we're going to, quote, make history. That's just dumb to me. I mean, things go the way they're supposed to go almost all the time. There's only been one exception to this rule. Alabama is just not going to be the second exception because there's just not enough facts lined up in a row to make that a possibility. So I think, Luke, the number that we have to look out for, we have to finish four games over 500. And if we do, there's a good chance we'll get in. Now, are we? I don't know. Are we? Well, here's the other thing. You you also have to hope that a lot of uh, teams like Gonzaga win their conference tournament. I mean, you correct. And yeah, I, you could get bubbled out. Oh, I hate so much that the conference tournament equals an automatic bid because I hate seeing teams with a losing record even get the opportunity to play for a, a, a national championship. I hate it, but well, it is what it I, is, and that's how they sell tickets. 
So I say this, I say this every year in our podcast all the first time I locked on Bama because it's just, just come up. But here's here here's the one thing I do hate, and, and it's the same exact argument you're making, but it's kind of this this argument out there that screw the 68 team thing. Let's have a tournament where everybody's in. Let's put everybody in. Let's put everybody in, add three more rounds, put everybody in, no selection committee. That's just at the end of the year, we'll seed it based on the regular season. And then at the end of the year, everybody's in. That That is an idea that's out there that's often discussed. And my point is, hey, you dumbasses, we already got that. We already have that. If you can go 0-30, play in your conference tournament, win your conference tournament, and you are in. Everyone is invited. It's just that the first round is your conference tournament. And anyone right. can play. So we have that already. Let's not do it again. So, yeah, I, I'm, I, I always like things just as you are. I didn't even like going to 68. I think these Dayton games are dumb. If there's going to be a play-in, if there's going to be a play-in and we got to go to 68, let's take the eight lowest-rated conferences and their tournament winners play each other in Dayton and have it, hey, the, the, we're going to play, uh, you know, these, these eight teams, these four teams – or, you know, they're all they're all playing for the right to be a 16 and to get slaughtered Friday. <laughs> I mean, that's that's how I, I would do it if we must be at 68, which I don't think we must be. We probably have too many Division One teams is the problem. And with all those conferences, we couldn't exclude any. Yeah, it's such a dumb number. I mean, 68, 68, 64 is perfect. 64, four then eight, then 16, then 32, then 64. The next number up from 64 needed to be 128, and for God's sakes, let's not do that. So 64, that should have been the number forever. Um, But some things going in Alabama's favor, the net ranking is 36, net strength of schedule five, Ken Palm ranking 46, Sagarin ranking, ranking is 42, got a win over Auburn, a win over LSU, uh, the best road wins aren't great. They're over number 100 Georgia at 148 Fandy. Uh, the worst losses to 153 Penn, I do think they'll take so. We did – boy, it was so long ago. Somebody didn't play in that game, and I can't remember we, who. We were injured. I, it might have been Beetle. Maybe Beetle didn't play, and maybe Alex Reese didn't play. Well, here's the other thing. The other worst losses to number 95 North Kakalaki back when they were actually good. And, you know, then they lose Cole Anthony and the wheels fall off and they're not good again. I mean, it's hard for them to recapture their mojo. Um, so Who we got thought the loss to North Carolina would hurt our yeah. March profile. Yeah. Welcome to 2020. Um, well, now, so we have A&M coming up Wednesday, of course. They're number 134. So that's a that's an absolute 100% yep. must win. Decimate your metrics. You lose that game, your metrics get decimated. At Ole Miss, number 81, and at Mississippi State, back-to-back, number 53. We got to um, get one of those road wins. I'm I'm with you, it, and it'd be a good road win. And I think we we're, we're catching both at good times, um, but you know we'll have to see. But then, oddly, we we're coming home to South Carolina, who's number sixty four. And the key thing about that game is they're fighting for a spot too. They've got some yep. really nice wins. They've got some horrific losses, but they've got some. It'll really almost nice feel like a knockout game. Like whoever loses that game's in big trouble, particularly Alabama. 
And then, of course, it at, home. at home and at Missouri to wind it up. And the thing about Missouri, I'm hoping by that time, <clears throat> Missouri's kind of kind of mailed it in a little bit. I mean, I think they played really geeked up against Auburn um, because Missouri is a bit of a basketball school. It's kind of – I'd say Missouri and Alabama are arguably two of the programs, two of the best programs in the country that have never been to a Final Four. Um, That's right. They are similar to They've never been. Um, so – uh, yeah, that, you know, playing at Missouri, but I mean, it's a long way to go between here and now, and I'm so anxious for A&M to get here, and I just don't want to blow it. I just don't want to have one of these games where we get up by 18 and A&M claws their way back into it because we don't have the depth. And I don't, but I don't know what to do about it. It's not like we can just start playing somebody else. We're we're not gonna have the depth. That's just a. That's why we probably won't do well in the SEC tournament. There's no way we're gonna have the depth to withstand the rigors of, of a several-day-in-a-row event. You with me, Jimmy? Yep, I hear you just fine. Yeah, you faded a little bit at the end, but but no, you know, no you're, you're good. We're good. Yeah, and I've got some more bad – I got bad basketball news. Ready for this? I hope this doesn't end up putting us on the soapbox because I don't want to – while things seemingly are going so well, I don't want to bring up the source subject, but – ESPN's mock draft today had both Kyra Lewis and John Petty in the second round. Which I don't know that that's bad news. Second round is not the same thing as first round. Oh, I agree a million percent. Any logical, any logical explanation of that needs to be. If you're a sophomore and a junior and you're projected in the second round and there is a path to the first round for you, then come back. Because getting drafted in the first round means you and your family are going to be somewhat wealthy for the rest of your life if you handle this well because your contract is guaranteed. If you go to the NBA and suck and they cut you and send you home, you still get every dime of the contract you sign. If you go to the NBA as a second-round pick, your contract is non-guaranteed. If you do not make the roster, your career is over. And I know that, no, 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 you can go to the G League. You can go to Europe. Are those really better options than, than than trying to get into the first round the following year? No, they are not. Just look at the raw numbers. But for some reason, here I am on the soapbox when I said, I hope this doesn't get us on the soapbox. But look at the raw numbers. Every person out there wants to argue they're an exception to the rule. And it just pisses me off. No, you won't be an exception to the rule. Know what you'll be? The rule. Look at the numbers. The numbers say if you're a first-round pick, you get all the money, and that's all you'll ever need if you if you, if you spend it wisely. If you're a second-round pick, there is over a 50 chance you will not make the roster. No, you're, you're absolutely right, and it's so funny you're talking about all the wealth you'll ever need because we're not saying – you know, if you're in the first round, you're going to get a $100 million contract. I mean, although no. it's probably trending in that direction, the way these things are going. But because um, some players are about to start getting $50 million a year. But, um, you know, I was I, I I don't know why I've been even moderately interested in this rap battle from about a year and a half, two years ago. But this th- there was a little rift between. Eminem and Machine Gun Kelly. And I don't listen to either one of them. I don't really know. I didn't know who Machine Gun Kelly was. I just found out about this thing randomly about six months ago. I was a year behind. And apparently, like, this Machine Gun Kelly who grew up an Eminem fan, like, had a song dissing Eminem. And Eminem came back with something much better and just blew his doors off. 
and Machine Gun Kelly sort of went in a hole after that. And for whatever reason, that popped into my head a couple of days ago. And I said, you know, I just I'm curious because in the song, maybe I heard Eminem's song again in the rap. Um, Eminem says, yeah, I mean, I don't know why you're trying to rich shame me because I am much richer than you. Eminem's worth like 200 million, you know, and Machine Gun Kelly's worth 8 million. And I was thinking, both of y'all have a shit ton of money. Why are y'all worried about that? I mean, yeah, 200 is definitely more than eight. But if you get $8 million, you can you can stop working. And so that's my point. You get an NBA contract for $8 million, and then you suck for two and a half years, but you still get $8 million to go away, not including the ancillary money you make from, you know, doing JoJo's uh, Hummer auto <laughs> park store ads. You can retire with you, your family, and your family's family. I mean, you can you can just sit back and go, I got $8 million. No, I'm not going to be able to, I'm not going to be able to have a house in the Hamptons. That's true. But for, with $8 million in the bank, you can stop working at the age of 22. And if you're That's not right. a complete dolt, you will, <laughs> you will retire comfortably and have money to pass to the next generation. That's so true. And fans, I, I guess it's because we grew up most of older most older sports fans grew up in an era where these these crazy dollar figures weren't out there. But one thing that frustrates me no end when I say let's well, about Sark in Colorado. Steve Sarkeesian is a is a top three or four candidate to become the next head coach of Colorado. That could happen. He's he, he's obviously, I mean, that's a thing. That's not like people speculating. It's a thing. And I don't know if it's gonna happen or not as of right now, but it might, but it might. And I have read repeatedly, repeatedly on message boards and everywhere else, repeatedly, Sark could be really dumb for taking that job because you can't win there. Well, this is what he would do there. He would sign a four-year contract for $16 million guaranteed. $16 million is what Sark would get for signing the deal, going out there, and going 0-12 four years in a row. He gets $16 million. Do you really think that the principal guiding decision is going to be, can I win there? Because it really doesn't matter. He will be rich for life. His kids will be rich for life. His kids' kids will go to college and not have to pay for it. He will have $16 million. Any Power 5 job is worth that. No one is going to. Now, if you're the hottest name out there, if you're the hottest name out there, there is an argument to be made about, well, if you're just patient for one more year, the mega job will open. I get that. But Sark has an off-the-field stain. These opportunities won't come along often for him. No one's been banging down his door because of what happened at USC. There's not that argument to make for Sark just needs to be patient. If Sark needs to be patient, he may not ever be a head coach again. That's right. So, so the money has changed. The argument has to stop being you can't win there. $16 million. I know not everyone fathoms what that is. It's a lot. It's a lot is what it is. It's like, what, 250000 a month for four years? And I mean, what you, what you could legitimately do, 
with with $16 million. And here's the other thing. You said if he goes 0-12 for four years. See, the catch would be he'd go about 0-16, and, and they'd fire him midway through season one and a half. And then he'd and he still gets all the money. And then he could get <laughs> Jones his ass and just clean Saban's Mercedes for a couple of years and be like, hey, I'm just sitting over here earning rings like everybody else. I'm still getting checks. And I, I get, the, you know, I get all the access to Alabama's facilities, and I'm and I'm considered now a national champion because Alabama won a national championship. Um, right. But it's so funny how, you know, people we all lose sight of money, and I'm worried about professional sports, and and, and I guess to in a sense college sports and eventually high school sports, in the sense that as I said earlier, there's some guys that are going to be making fifty million dollars a year in the NBA, and I guess there's some people already close to that in the Major League Baseball too. And my point to that would be, okay, I love basketball, and I do. I'm 47. I played some basketball yesterday, uh, you know, just sort of screwing around. And while I was there, somebody tore his Achilles. I know they tore his, tore his Achilles, not because I'm a doctor, not because I'm because smart. Because heard it. Because I've done it before. And when I heard the snap, heard I said, oh, shit. And I felt heard his that. Achilles. I felt his Achilles, and it wasn't there. And I, I felt the other one. I was like, dude, feel this one and feel this one. He's like, oh, my God. And I was like, yeah, I think his Achilles is gone. Like it's checked out. It left lifetime fitness. I don't know where it is. And um, so uh, my, my point is that if I'm making 50 million a year and I'm an NBA superstar, but, you know, in the NBA can be sort of rough and tumble. It's not a sissy league. I mean, you can go in there and you can get your damn teeth knocked out. If somebody catches you with an elbow, you can get really hurt or you can tear up your knees or tear up your hips or whatever. You know, maybe you play for two years and be like, hey, guys, See you later. I made a hundred million, and like I, me nor my kids or grandkids or great grandkids or kids after that, and, and probably kids after that, unless one of them really starts screwing up, are ever gonna have to work again. So I'll check you later. Especially that would be the way I would think in football. football and, it's not, and football's happening. That's yes, happening in football happening. more and more. <clears throat> so not a lot, but it is happening. I don't even know where we're going with this. I guess in a sense, we're just talking about money in general. Now we've become a financial, a very dumb financial podcast. We're the opposite of, um, Oh shit. Who's the guy? Like the, the money guy, as his name's escaping oh, uh, me right now. Uh, Sherman Dave, no, Dave, Dave. Dave uh, oh God. Timmy. Damn it. Dave guy. Christian, uh, Dave, uh, ah, shit. I'm going to look it up while we're talking. Um, <laughs> But no, I saw on. Yeah, um, I've, I've Dave taken Ramsey. some ideas from Dave that Ramsey. Dave guy. Dave Ramsey. Yeah, I applied but, a couple of his ideas to my own person. I mean, I'm not endorsing it or anything, but I, I took two or three of his simple ideas when I was in my 20s, and it has worked. It has worked for us well. So, no, you know, I'm it's, a Dave it's, Ramsey fan. But it really, all he does is get on there and spout common sense. And it's good yeah. to have somebody that does that because sometimes you, know, you need that. People call and say, should I refinance my several installment loans into what? He's like, don't refinance shit. Quit going to Starbucks and pay your freaking loans off. <laughs> yeah, but I really like coffee. <laughs> He's like, yeah, make your own damn coffee and, and just get a, get a pot with some folders <laughs> and be done with it. But anyway, um, the reason I brought this up is on Twitter today, I saw Jeff Bezos is donating like $10 billion to climate change. And some complete dickhead had the audacity to be like, oh, well, that's only like 10% of his net worth. I'm like, man, yeah. it doesn't make a shit. If, some, <laughs> if somebody had 200 That's the dumbest comment ever. And, and they're like, here's 10 billion. 
there's n- not a scenario where you don't just take your clothes off and go do what you will with me now. <laughs> Whatever talk, you want, I'm into it. I talked to the richest guy. And I mean, I mean, everybody's got their, their, but I, I have, you know, I, I, one friend in particular who's, who's very wealthy and we we're talking about sports contracts uh, one day and, and some inside scoop on, on what one guy's being offered versus another guy. And I told him, I'm like, cause I saw somebody on, on, on a message board or something say, you know, once you're making 2.4 million, it, what's the difference between that and 3.1 million? Really? And so I asked this guy who's worth multiple millions of dollars. I said, that's one of the dumbest comments ever. Cause the answer to that is $700,000, which exactly. deal are you taking? And he yeah. said, $700,000 is a lot of money, especially if you have so much money, you can save it and make a safe investment and it grows for you. He's like, whoever made that comment just doesn't know money and never will have any. That's exactly (laughs) correct. Yeah. But but that's what's funny. I mean, like we're, so we're sort of talking out of both sides of our mouths here, sort of like saying, well, we, we understand 3.1 is much better than 2.4. But I also believe there is a point where you get to it, where if you're making X amount of million dollars a year that you can say, okay, I, I don't have to, you know, it's risk versus reward. Um, you know, well, there comes a point, my, there comes a point. I mean, I there does my, come a point where it doesn't matter. There does come a point. That's going to be different for every person. But like you were saying in your uh, example of, you know, an NBA player making 50 million a year has only got to work two years. Well, once he got a hundred million, once you got a hundred million, at that point, the decisions really don't need to be about money unless you're dying, unless you're, okay, I got a new goal. I want to be the first billion dollar athlete. Okay. If that's your goal, then keep on working and keep on figuring it out. But I'm just saying, if you got a hundred million, that is all you anyone would ever need. I'm not trying to be Bernie Sanders. I'm the opposite yeah. of Bernie Sanders. I love billionaires. I'm all for it. I think this country is great because of our billionaires. We can do that here. And most of our billionaires, by the way, are great people. They're not all assholes, Bernie. Most of them are great. Just well, look what Jeff Bezos is doing, committing $10 billion to, uh, to a, a global environmental cause. So most of our billionaires are great, and I'm all for billionaires. But I also say that once you have a hundred million, I mean, what what do you need? I get want. There's a difference between want and need. I'm just saying need is out. Need is out unless you're insane. You know, like I've got to have a billion dollars, which is fine. And by the way, if LeBron James, who has an outside shot at being worth a billion dollars fairly soon or one day. If that's a goal of his, I won't even, I wouldn't, I, I would, I wouldn't change how I think of him. I think that's great. If that's something that's important to him, uh, great, go for it, do it. But gosh, I can't imagine having a hundred million and feeling you're still 20 million short of something. No. Well, a friend of mine once said, I think John Elway got involved with auto trader or got involved with, with some kind of car thing a long time ago. And John Elway finally sold out for like a hundred and ninety million dollars or some stupid it was a dealerships. Yeah. yeah, and um, so a friend of mine said, "You know," he said, "I've, I've been thinking about that." He said, "I think a hundred ninety million is my number. That's what I need." He said, "If I had a suitcase with two hundred million dollars in it, and you had a suitcase with a hundred ninety million in, it, said let's trade, I'd do it." 
because all I need is 190 million. You know, like I don't need this, this extra 10 million just weighing me down. I just, that's just that's my point. more money, more problems. And that is my point. Yeah. There comes a point when it's okay, okay, okay. I can't spend this. My kids can't spend this. Their kids can't spend this. Okay. Hey, Bernie, what do you want me to do with it, man? I'm not and sure I'm that generational wealth is a good idea anyway. You know, I heard Sting once say, and Sting's got to be worth near a billion. I mean, Sting, I mean, Sting would be, you know, top 10 earners on the planet. I'm sure in music oh, probably, uh, dude, over his career. A billion in KY Jelly, it sounds like. He's into so, so much tantric bullshit. <laughs> good, for, good for him. Good, good for him. But I heard him say once that, I mean, just, you know, everybody's going to have a different style of parenting and nobody wants their kids to struggle. And I'm sure that wasn't his intent. And I'm going to par- I'm going to butcher what he said, but he was talking about how even though he has so much money, his kids wouldn't need to work and wouldn't need a career. He felt he was shortchanging them as humans. And he want, he wanted his kids to go to college. He wanted them to have careers and he was not going to just gift them enough money where they didn't have to work or, or, or go to school. He said, because I want them to have a, the human experience. He says, I, I'm not necessarily talking about struggle where they don't know, you know, if they can pay the light bill or where their next meal is coming from. So I'd never do that to my kids, but I'm also not going to make them. And, and again, I'm paraphrasing. You probably didn't use this term uh, trust fund babies where, Hey, they don't, you know, Hey, if you don't want to go to school, don't go to school. If you don't want to work, don't work. Just stay home and raise my grandkids. Or no, he didn't want it. He felt, that he owed it to his kids to have them build a career for themselves. And I think that's, that's noble myself. I think it is noble too. Uh, and, mm-hmm. but I'm also, if I were Sting's kid, I'd be like, hey, uh, all right, how much of a struggle do you need me going? <laughs> dad, I would say, dad, I will go to college. Can I go there in a Ferrari? Yeah. Yeah. Do you mean struggle like Maserati or Ferrari struggle or do you mean used Taurus struggle? <laughs> okay. All right, okay, okay. Ruth Chris, three days a week, only three days a week to Ruth Chris. I get it. Yeah. I'll do some extra sit-ups or something, but you know, I still want to eat at Spago. So, yeah. Um, all right. We only got a few seconds here left, so we'll just say roll tide and we will catch up with you guys tomorrow. And football soon. I've watched more of the 2021 in-state group. I get more and more excited about them every day. I made this tweet today. One of my interesting finds so far, this may be the deepest group of quality cornerbacks in the state I can remember. It seems like of the top, I, I haven't arranged my top 16 yet or my top 30. I bet of the top 30 guys in Alabama, 10 of them might be corners. I bet wow. that's never happened. Wow. So, there's your football blurb for the day. That's where people put athletes now. Well, yeah. I mean, corners, very important. Corners can still go number one overall in the draft. I mean, if you want to know what positions are most important in football, look where the, follow the money. Who goes high in the draft? Quarterbacks, pass rushers, offensive tackles, corners, to some extent receivers, but not really. But Corners will be will go higher than receivers when they're super elite. Not running backs. Thanks, Trent Richardson. Uh, <laughs> just teasing, Trent. I love you. Um, all right, roll tide, everybody. Roll tide.